scripture reading today is taken from Luke chapter 6, verses 17 to 26. Page 1600 Pew Bibles. Verse 17. He went down with them and stood on level place. A large crowd of his disciples were there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you, and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their fathers treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that has been preserved for us. As we catch a glimpse of what you did while you were on earth 2,000 years ago, through your word that has been preserved for us, we ask that, Lord, your spirit will abide in us opening up our hearts, our minds, our ears, that we can be among the people gathered in this level place, listening to you. To the end that, Lord, we can be faithful disciples of you, fervent, wanting to please you, and moving ahead 
as we seek to grow more and know you more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The way of discipleship. And this morning's passage that is read for us contains a series of blessings and woes. To start with, I would like us to look back at a series of events that led Jesus up to this point. Some would call it the Sermon on Mount or even the Sermon on the Plain. I'll get to that in a little while. But this backdrop of events have one common thread running through, and that is conflict. We see Jesus in chapter 5, and I think that was either last week or the week before that, healing a leper. As I said this morning, I remember pastor's words that the lepers in those days when they move among the crowd, the marketplace, wherever they are, where there are other people around, they, they would have to shout out, unclean, unclean, and the crowd would part way because they are indeed unclean spiritually. And any contact with a leper will make the other person spiritually unclean and would have to go for ritual cleansing, etc. Untouchables. But Jesus touched and healed the leper and instructed the leper upon his healing, not to tell anyone, but go to the priest and from there to gain a certificate of cleanliness, my own words, so that he will no longer be spiritually or, what's that word, will be unclean and be able to join society and partake of day-to-day -day activities. It drew a lot of attention. Word spread. I can imagine if something like this happened in, in Georgetown, in Penang, you would know of it. Thanks to this. Word spread. The Pharisees got to know of it. The teachers of the law, the religious authorities got to know of that. And then we move on and we see that Jesus moved to heal a paralytic. This is the story where the paralytic was carried by his four friends, couldn't get into the place where Jesus was teaching. The house was full of people. They climbed up the roof, punched a hole, and lowered the paralytic man in the midst of Jesus. And, and Jesus, when he saw their faith, forgave the sins of his friends, friends of the paralytic, that is. And that drew a lot of consternation from the Pharisees and teachers of the law. Who can forgive sins but God? Remember that? And Jesus said something like, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or get up and walk, and to show you that the Son of Man can do that. He healed the paralytic. He got up, took up his pallet or this bed, and went home. Moving on, 
we read that Jesus ate and drank with sinners, with Levi. First, having called Levi to follow him, Levi was overjoyed and gave a feast to celebrate and called his other friends, who are all tax collectors. And therefore, Jesus was seen to be eating and drinking and in the social norms of those days to engage with a group of sinners. Again, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law saw that and jotted down, I suppose, as one other accusation of Jesus. Then he ate grain with his disciples, rubbing them the palm of their hands in the kernels on the Sabbath. And in addition to that, he healed a man with a withered arm or hand also on the Sabbath. These events had this one common thread running through them in that they cause conflicts because what Jesus did and said was in total opposition to the norm of what is acceptable and what is expected in the religious, even social practices of those days. And the reversal of what Jesus did of right or acceptable and wrong conflicted with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And as I was looking back at this and preparing, I thought I could summarize in this way. In sin, Jesus forgave people, the friends of the paralytic. And only God can forgive. But He forgave. In sinners, He ate with them, drank with them, fellowshiped with them. In Sabbath, He acted, He healed, He ate, and with His disciples. The accusation was, others fasted, but you and your disciples ate. So, Jesus, in his ministry leading up to this point, when he talked to a crowd of people on this so-called level place, was filled with conflict after conflict, with the norms and that which is acceptable in those days, and champion of all by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, if I say they are legalistic, it would be an understatement. They scrutinize the law to ensure that it is being practiced and scrutiny perhaps to the letter of the law. So much so that their focus is giving them a misleading 
perception. That's what I can say. They focus so much on the law or the letter of the law, many of which written by man in addition to the law that is given by God, so much so that they missed the lawgiver himself, Jesus himself, who stood flesh and blood before them. They focus so much on the past, what was done traditionally, historically, the norms, that they missed the promised Messiah. They focused on the tradition that they missed out on the transition or the change. And these collectively, I just put it under a header as barriers to change. And change or a new thing is what Christ Jesus has come to give a new commandment. And in the conflicts that we saw preceding this sermon that he gave on this level place, the consistencies of what Jesus is doing is to turn everything upside down and championed by the Pharisees and the religious leaders, the teachers of the law, they are reluctant to change. They are reluctant to waver from their traditional practices to change, even though that change is of God. I'd like us to refer to the last segment of Luke chapter 5 on fasting and wineskins. And for consideration of time, I'd just like to read a few verses about the wineskins and maybe about the garment. He, that is Jesus, told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and places it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh or new wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. That last statement is a representation of the barriers to change. The old is good. There's a lot more older people in the first service, and they said amen when I said this. The old is good. But here, the change itself is initiated by Jesus. And if you see the conflicts in the engagement Jesus had in the events leading to this sermon, everything Jesus says and do is totally upside down. And people were resisting. Before I go into the blessings and woes, let's take a look at the background. Jesus went down with them, stood in this level place. And I said, as I read different 
Bible scholars and commentators, some would say this is actually the same. It is the same sermon that was written down by Matthew in the Sermon of the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Others suggest that, no, it's not the same sermon. There is another occasion at least that Jesus preached, and this is the one that Luke recorded, and it's called the Sermon on the Plain. And there are many discussions and suggestions that, on one I read with amusement, is that it's the same mountain. Jesus came down into a level place. That's not the, the foot of the mountain, but it's a high plateau. And there he preaches, still on the mountain, but he's on a high plateau. Others said, no, he's actually on the plains. The third possibility could be it is a different emphasis. Perhaps Matthew and Luke were referring to the same sermon, but they gave different emphasis. I think we're not here to, to determine which is which, because suffice that we look at Luke, the richness of the lessons will do for us either way. However, I'd just like to point out some differences between the account in Matthew 5 and Luke. The first is literal versus spiritual. Luke's account of the Sermon on the Plain or Mount is more literal. Literal in the sense that he wrote down, blessed are the poor. Yours is the kingdom of God. But Matthew puts it in a spiritual manner. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Luke, on the other hand, blessed are the hungry or those who hunger. And Matthew puts it as blessed are those who hunger for justice and righteousness, spiritualizing it. I, I tend to think that the way or the emphasis Luke has placed on what he wrote down as the blessings is to continue in this thread of conflicts, of upside-down um, system of values. Let me attempt to clarify what I mean. If we are among the crowd, and, and if Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, in my mind, the question to ask is, by looking around, can we know who among us are poor in spirit? Because it is an internal thing. To take the argument to the next level, you could have a very rich man by the way he dressed, a, a, a robe, a purple robe maybe, or, or rings of gold in his fingers, but he may be poor in spirit. But the literal representation by Luke, blessed are the poor. And brothers and sisters, we can see, we can identify the poor by the outward appearance, by what they wear or don't wear, by the looks of their face. 
Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You can't see that. But blessed are the hungry. The poor, the hungry has a lot of overlap. If you are poor, very likely you will be hungry. And the thread that Jesus continues in this particular sermon on the plain or on the mount is that he continues to turn things upside down in opposition to the norm. And the norm being, let me put it this way, if you are wealthy or rich or so-so, it stands to the logic that you must be all right, you must be doing things proper and therefore receive God's blessing and therefore you are not poor. So it should be blessed are the rich. But here, Jesus, at least that's how Luke records it, is blessed are the poor. And I think a lot of people would be Amazed. Why? Aren't the poor poor because they have disobeyed God or not followed God or done something wrong and therefore God has withheld His blessings and they were poor? So this is a total reversal of values. And Luke chooses, chooses or chose to write his gospel in such manner. Blessed are the poor in a literal way. The other differences includes Luke wrote it in the second person, you will be satisfied. Matthew wrote it in the third person, and they shall be satisfied. Luke's account is more descriptive. He tells it as it is compared to Matthew that has prescriptive elements in the Sermon of the Mount and the Beatitudes in that it prescribes a certain course of action that the disciples and the crowd need to act upon in order to receive those blessings. Not Luke. He just stays it. And of course, the most obvious is that what we are going to go through or what have been read for us has four blessings and four corresponding matching woes as compared to Matthew's nine Beatitudes or nine blessings. So that's the background. Let's take a look at the crowd. The crowd consists of his disciples and a great number of people. And among his disciples, a subset of them in the verses prior to this, when Jesus went up to the mountain to pray, he actually called out among his disciples 12 apostles. So you can put the apostles among the disciples as well. And people, and where are they from? All Judea, Jerusalem, Tyre, and Sidon. And if you look at the map where these places are, you would see that they run the north and south and the breadth of that region is like from Kanga to Johor Bahru, Kota, Kota, Kota Bahru or Kuala Trungganu to, to, to Balik Pulau kind of a thing. And if you look at that geographic representation, you would know that among the people that were gathered that day or that evening 
would be Orthodox Jews as well as the Gentiles. Everyone was there. And why were they there? I suggest a few reasons why people gathered around Jesus. Remember, from the point that he conducted his ministry and he started healing the leper, the, the sick, the people with the withered hand, he drew attention. And people from all around wanted to be healed by Jesus. They wanted to hear him. And I suppose some wanted both. Others wanted to be delivered from unclean spirits. There's a dimension of spiritual and physical. To be healed physically from lameness, inability to see, a withered hand, and to be healed spiritually in that the casting out of evil spirits and demons in possession cases. Both were there. They wanted to touch him. For Luke records, for power came out from him and healed them all. I would also suggest there is a spiritual and physical dimension to that. You don't need need to physically touch someone in order to touch that person. Some of us are touched when we see something or when we learn of something spiritual. It moves us, it touched us, affected us. Although we could be miles away or even time zones away from whoever is saying something or whatever we have witnessed. But the crowd was there, seeking to be healed, seeking to learn, to hear Him, to be delivered from spiritual bondage, and where possible, to touch Him. For in Jesus lies power, power of a very different kind as of God. We'll come to the blessings. Verse 20, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. There is an immediacy in this, that the poor in Jesus' pronouncement have been given the kingdom of God, for yours is the kingdom of God. It is such a comfort for the crowd, for I am quite sure among the actual crowd in that day when Jesus said, blessed are you who are poor, not poor in spirit, who are poor, that many in the crowd would identify immediately. Yes, I am poor. I am blessed. And when they hear the words, for yours is the kingdom of heaven, how much must they have been ministered to? After the first service, I was talking to some people, and one young lady came to me and thanked me for the message, and they said, yeah, blessed are the poor. And she said, yes, I'm poor. I didn't question her. She's just a second time in our church. But the people who are poor 
would know who they are. And for them, is the kingdom of God. The poor includes those, or as a result of poverty, will include those who are marginalized, who are outcasts of societies, voiceless, disadvantaged, powerless. The description can go on. In our care group last Friday, we did a little bit of such a study. Who are the poor among us? And sometimes we may not know who the poor are simply because we, we move around in our daily work, in our daily engagement with people, and, and the circle of people that we engage with are not poor people. And therefore, it takes a little effort to identify who are the poor. Not in that day when Jesus spoke to the crowd on the mountain or in the plain. Jesus pronounced a reversed order and a very upside-down value system, as I mentioned earlier, which followed his actions leading up to this point. The world and the kingdom of God are diametrically opposed and conflicted. We are in the world, but we should not be of the world. And if we claim to be followers of Christ as His disciples, and we look at Christ's time on earth, we see He is in constant conflict and opposition with what the value systems of the world stood for. And if our Lord, our Master, is himself conflicted with this world that he is in, but not of. Then what about us? Are we not also to expect some degree of conflict as we seek to faithfully follow and obey Jesus? And the thought just came to my mind as we pray for Pastor Raymond, who sought to be a faithful disciple of Christ. And I'm quite certain that his actions, maybe even his words, led to conflict with the systems and belief systems of this world, of our country, that led to his abduction. The world sees wealth as a mark of God's approval. We even have the prosperity gospel. And I wonder whether our pastor would one day give us a teaching on what the prosperity gospel is all about because it bears learning and understanding lest we become not only in the world and of the world and that our lives are devoid of conflict, then who are we? Wealth, I want to say this, can be 
and have been a blessing of God for those who are obedient. God does and God can. Wealth is not the issue. The discussion I want to pursue here is that there is a correlation between spiritual sensitivity and dependency on God, which is inversely proportional to financial prosperity. If I turn the clock back 25 years, I would be teaching in free school, and I'll be drawing a formula that says <laughs> spiritual sensitivity, dependency on God is inversely proportional to financial prosperity, <laughs> which means, in layman's terms, the tendency is that the more financial well-being of that person is, the richer or the wealthier we are, the tendency and the temptation and the possibility or the inclination is that our spiritual sensitivity and our dependency of God can be that much weaker because you have everything. Yes, money can buy a lot of things, but let us not be deceived. All I'm saying here is that wealth can be God's blessing, but there is a danger in the financial wealth because of reduced possible reduction of spiritual sensitivity and dependency on God. Well, why should Jesus bless the poor and pronounce woe on the rich? So it's not a case where Jesus blesses the poor and is silent about the rich because these four blessings are matched with four woes, and there is a direct correlation. It's like I'm saying, white is good. Black is not good. It's very clear. It doesn't leave anything to your interpretation or imagination. I could just venture, perhaps, and that's the emphasis of this point, perhaps the rich can be more tempted and more susceptible to trust in their wealth instead of God. And I'm, I'm not saying all, all those who are rich will do that. There is just that much more temptation, inclination, and susceptibility. And therefore, we need to be aware of it. And to trust in their influence to unfair means of acquiring wealth or to trust in their power to take advantage of the poor. Because in this world, wealth has its trappings. Wealth comes with it influence and power. And therefore, the temptation and the inclination and the susceptibility of those who have wealth to trust other things apart from God. And my personal position here is that both Luke's and Matthew's representation in the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain can both be true, which means blessed are the poor, period, as well as blessed are the poor in spirit.
Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Note that there is a difference in the first blessing in that it is immediate, but in the second and third blessing, it is future tense. For those who are hungry now, you will be in the future satisfied. In the meantime, hold on, persevere. It's close to lunchtime. Some of you are hungry. Some of us understand what hunger is. I struggle with this and I put it down. Hunger includes the uncertainty of the next meal. Hunger includes even the presence of food, but because of poverty, and lack, the meal itself is never filling. Filling as in the picture of a sumptuous feast. Chinese New Year wasn't that far away. My friend told me he gained two kilograms over one week. Just eat and eat and eat and eat. Until you have to unbutton certain buttons in your garment. And never satisfied. And I can imagine if you follow me that if we are among the crowd of people in that plain, and Jesus said, blessed are you who are poor in the first blessing, for yours is the kingdom of God. There could be a murmur and a, a, a few amens. I don't think they say amens then, right? <laughs> yeah, they do? Okay. And then when it comes to the second pronouncement, Blessed are you who hunger more, perhaps. This is just uh, my own example. More would say, yeah, I'm hungry. You will be satisfied. Yeah. He's working the crowd now. The crowd is now responding. What did Jesus say next? Blessed are you who weep now. And both men and women who weep, will in their hearts put up their hands. Yes, Lord. And Jesus says, for you will laugh. Weeping and mourning are but signs or results, responses to rejection, to ridicule and loss. And the crowd on that day have more of their fair share at being rejected, ridiculed, lost, and what else, I don't know. And they weep. We have often heard people who are in sorrow and mourning say, I cry until I have no tears left. Blessed are those who weep now, for you will laugh. And this promise of joyful laughter suggests that the people who are weeping now in future will find acceptance when there is rejection now, will find affirmation when there is ridicule, and will have restoration 
of all that they have lost. And then will they laugh. What a blessing. Verse 22, and here I want to work the crowd. I can imagine when Jesus says this, Blessed are you when men hate you. Wow! Part of the crowd was, yes, I'm so hated. When they exclude you, me. When they insult you more and more, identify with these degradatory things that were done to them. Hated, excluded, insulted. And reject your name as evil. Oh, they are so happy and they are waiting for the pronouncement of the blessing. And then Jesus says, because of the Son of Man. Huh? <laughs> now here, the point I'm just trying to make is simple. We can be rejected, we can be hated, we can be excluded, we can be insulted. But the blessings here is conditional that these are what men do to us on account of Jesus, not on our own account. If we do something wrong and people hate us, you, bury, you carry that yourself. No blessing, sorry. This is a conditional blessings of those who endure the rejection and the persecution because of their faithfulness in Jesus as disciples. Then, we can claim to be blessed. And this brings to mind the question for all of us. How then does being faithful disciples of Christ bring us hate, exclusion, insult, rejection? Have we experienced some, all of these at some point in our lives as disciples? I would say yes. And I think the point here is that we should be prepared because Christ himself has been rejected, hated. How much more we who follow Christ in his steps would have to endure and experience what our Lord endured himself. Rejoice, Jesus says, in that day and leap for joy. How many of you can remember when was the last time you leaped for joy? <laughs> it, it has to be something joyous, of course. It has to be something significant. You don't leap for joy when someone gives you a small bun. Yeah, I got a bun and leap for joy. It has to be something endured through. And remember, the second and third blessing is a future tense blessings. For you will be satisfied and you will laugh. And the time, the endurance will build up. And when that time comes, on that day, you will leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. Don't think I am doctrinally wrong that when we go to heaven, many of us will be leaping for joy. But we need to be faithful now on earth to follow Christ 
to carry the cross and not deny Him. For that is how the fathers treated the prophets. The fathers of the Pharisees, the unbelievers, treated the prophets of old. They are treating you the same. The disciples of Jesus needed to hear this to encourage them. And dear brothers and sisters, I pray too that we are today also encouraged because the blessing applies, can apply to us. To what extent then, the question I ask is, do our churches today need to similarly hear this so that we can have the patient endurance and that steadfastness and when men revile us, reject us, persecute us, to know that on that day, the reward is great and we shall leap for joy. In closing, I just want to present the woes against the blessings, which what I said, they are matching woes to the blessings. So on the left, woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. It is also that sense of immediacy. You're done. If you are rich, you have already received your comfort. Blessed are you who are poor, for it, yours is the kingdom of God. And I think it remains for those in the crowd who are poor to accept, to receive that which is already presented to them. There is no need to wait. The kingdom of God is at hand. Verse 25b, Woe to you who are well fed, well fed, for you will grow hungry. I was told that people who are well fed cannot tahan hunger because the stomach is used to be this size. Will grow hungry. Future tense. As compared with blessed are you who hunger now for you will be satisfied. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. just want to pause at this point to make a point. Scripture has told us we should not seek the favor of men to the expense of God. Not to be men pleases, but God pleases. Come to think of it, if we live our lives to please fellow men or of the world, then what are we? but to please God. So if we are being spoken well, there's a pronouncement of woe. And in contrast, blessed are you when they hate you, exclude you, insult you, reject you because of the Son of Man. And just to close, 
just want to pose three questions to ourselves. Am I, and to what extent am I, conflicted with the world and its ways? And we should be if we are faithful followers of Christ. Blessings or woes, which would more aptly apply to me, my church? In what ways can I be the channel of God's blessings to the poor, the hungry, those who weep, the hated, excluded, insulted, rejected? Our lay leader pointed out to a couple of ministry areas, Lubo Antu and the poor students, or students that are in lack of virtually anything and everything. Do take time to pray about this. See how we can be agencies and channels to bring blessings, for I'm sure we ourselves in doing so will come away much blessed. Let's pray.